1: Welcome into Trailblazers for another week here on SENZ, I'm Ricky Swanell. Well, my guest today is one of those people, why do one sport when you can do eight? Is probably the best way to describe the career of my guest Sarah Callie ross She competed as a heptathlete and a high jumper at Olympics and Commonwealth Games and since using that R word, retirement is forging quite the career in a whole lot of different spheres on and off the sporting field. My guest, Sarah Callie ross welcome to Trailblazers. Oh, kia ora Thank you so much for having me. That's a pleasure to talk to you. Well, look, you've been on the hit list for a while, so I'm glad we've been uh, able to do this, that all these people that I see and like, oh, you're on the list, don't worry. Thank <laughs> <Please laughs> you. I, lo- I love listening to all the oh. amazing women that you've had, yes,
0: and
1: we- including yourself. Oh, thank you. Yes, we've got some pretty cool people around, aren't we? Right, let's talk about you, though. Um, and I'll go, go right back. You're born and raised in Vegas, Rotorua, and um, was sport always a huge part of your life?
0: Yeah, it was actually. Uh, I'm in the middle of two boys, and so we had a uh, competitive, uh, more friendly now, um, although still, you know, family, when we get together, it's, uh, there's a lot of competitive genes still that run okay. deep. But um, we were really lucky. My parents actually met through sport, so they met at like a Easter basketball tournament at the at YMCA back in the day. And my mum did lots of sport. My dad played basketball for New Zealand. Uh, And really just we realised at a young age that uh, sport was important to our family. But I guess more than that, I guess it's just physical health. Mm. And we were lucky to grow up in Las Vegas um, because everything was five or ten minutes away. Um, I have really vivid memories now of going for walks in the Redwoods uh, on a Sunday afternoon and now as a parent I realise what my parents are doing um, running off steam <laughs> and energy um, but I guess it laid a foundation for us and for my brothers and I and I think as, as well we, we mainly just paid like a summer and a winter sport uh, because that's kind of what we did when we were growing up but now there's so much Different, so many different options. Um, but we were lucky; we had parents that encouraged us, that were able to transport us and encourage us as well to, you know, for for to be our best and work hard to achieve our
1: best as yeah. well. I love the idea of love blossoming at the Panmure YMCA. I know, isn't it great? <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: yeah, my. Um, my dad died
0: nearly twenty years ago, but um, that love is still strong. And actually, last week we just we have a memorial golf tournament for my dad every year, and uh, it's really nice for family and friends to still. Uh,
1: do something which my dad loved and, and, re, and remembering him. Yeah, so nice. Um, your first love on, on the sporting front was netball. What, to what sort of, and, and there's a bit of a hotbed in the Bay of Plenty and around that area, some really good quality netball at that youth age. What sort of level were you at? Where did you get to with it? So I played, um, yeah, netball was absolutely my first love. Uh,
0: I think when I think about it, why was not my first love? Is because I got to see it. At- on TV yeah. and uh, it was like you say Rotor Netball has got some amazing volunteers who really fostered uh, the game in terms of the level that I got to I was um, up to Bay of Pliny, under 17 uh, national tournament we, we would always go to Whanganui and I made a national tournament team um, but at the time I was sort of in what was my 6th or 7th form year and sort of was making decisions about which sports to kind of pursue so that was the level I got to but then I did have a little bit of a foray back into netball after the London Olympics um, sort of was like oh what do I do I, I didn't really I wasn't really sure if my body could keep handling hip training and I had this thing where I um, lo- always loved netball obviously and I, and I really wanted to get, like be able to sing the national anthem
1: mm.
0: so I was like oh let's Danielle Trani, but also um, Cheryl Dawson, who was the CEO of Magic at the time.
1: My old uh, my... high school deputy principal.
0: <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and you know what? This is New Zealand. Um, she also taught uh, some family members of mine in Tokoroa. So <laughs> there you go.
1: <laughs>
0: Cheryl and Gary are great people. Um, and she wrote back when I was overseas, um, just after London, and was like, uh, I said, oh, you know, what do you, what do you have to do to get in the magic which is now I think oh my gosh like <laughs> very you know very brave of me to just kind of oh, think that I could you know trial anyway she was um, basically sort of had about five weeks to the trials um, she let me in and um, I would come down from Auckland work with um, Mary Jane Arador who's now the magic coach mm. and we attended a couple of Bay um, baby Plenty like uh, training sessions did a session with Knowles actually who was the culture coach of the magic and also a friend Debbie White um, in Auckland helped me a bit and so I sort of had had a bit of time or a month to prepare to learn to like <laughs> change like change direction while I was running because that was very foreign to me. Uh, you know, moved off the center to pass things like that. And uh, anyway, you know I did the trials, got the a training partner position. And the reality was I did live in Auckland, I was prepared to come to the Magic, but also got offered a Mystics training position as well. I went to see Rowan Henry, had a, had a chat to her, and I couldn't actually trial for Mystics. I uh, had a couple of stress fractures yeah. at, at the time, so ended up just, uh, long story short, paid a bit for the... Um, Try, trained with the
1: mystic for a bit, but realised I still had a lot of um, juice left for athletics. So I went back to athletics. What is it about a- athletics? I've talked to a whole lot of athletes in other sports, and for so many of them, it was such a formative thing as a, as a kid to, to do athletics. Niall Williams saying it was, you know, it was the self-reliance, that it was her, to, her doing it, and it's taught her so much. What about athletics, what made you want to commit?
0: I think it's that, pursuit of the excellence and that real purity of how fast can you go, how high can you jump, how far can you throw. And for me, it's kind of like this beautiful obsession. Um, mm-hmm. And for me, that, that's what it was. And I felt that I wanted to go to another comic game and I didn't want to do athletic um, – sorry, didn't want to do heptathlon anymore, too broken – uh, but I felt like I could still jump higher in high jump, so it was. I think it really is that that real quest to mm. and and that pursuit of that perfect performance. Yep, and it's, um, that's what keeps you going. Mm. And it's very rare that actually that when it all comes together, when you're in a, this amazing state of flow. Uh, but that how good it is when you do nail it keeps you going for a long
1: time in between. But, but why heptathlon, though? Like, why do eight sports when you could, or eight events when you could do one? I mean, nothing wrong with just one? That's
0: right. Uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's seven, oh, so fortunately not eight. There we go, good <laughs> and, counting, from, good from me. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's... um. I guess I, I grew up as a sort of a hurdle on high jumper, but people always sort of commented, oh, you should just hit that tackle on, and I was very resistant, actually. Uh, I'm not a natural thrower, and so for me, I was like, oh, this is not going to be good if I did that. Uh, long story short, went uh, to World University Games, actually, in Long Jump uh, in 2005, and roomed with. My, one of my best mates, my best mate Rebecca Wardell, who's a heptathlete she went the 2008 Olympics for heptathlon and I was like, I have travelled halfway around the world to do like six jumps and I was like, what am I doing? And I saw how much fun she was having at heptathlon, sort of in really near a description and also realised actually my greatest potential in athletics is in heptathlon, whether I like yeah. it or not yeah. uh, so five months later we came home, changed in, the and then five months later, we were both at the Commonwealth Games together. Wow, uh, which was pretty cool. Yeah.
1: You mentioned your dad and, and you lost him. I think he, you are about maybe 19, 20, somewhere around there when, when he passed away. And obviously that's such a, a a formative age when you're really transitioning into your other life. But for you, that's when your sort of athletics career is, is, was, is starting to make, make strides as well. I mean, what sort of, obviously a life-changing thing to have happen, but did that have an impact on, I guess, the tra- trajectory of your athletics career? Yeah. Yeah. I-
0: I, I definitely on reflection now I think probably not immediate for me but uh, for a long period after that 2006 Commonwealth Games I didn't improve I mm. had this sort of five year period of uh, only improving 42 points so in hip path on that, it's like less than 2% so <laughs> not a good bet at the TAB <laughs> um, and, and pretty sold to, three, to be honest mm. like for the effort and I guess for the potential that I could you know, that I could see, that people could see in me. I just couldn't put it together in a in a heptathlon. In fact, when I sort of when I retired officially, I was like, how many you know, to get in a heptathlon you need to, you know, you this is this is part of the lure of the event is that you're trying to get seven events to work and, and That never happened for me, but you're going as close as that as possible. Um, It it never happened to me that I got seven personal bests in one event, but that's the pursuit that keeps you going. And for me, um, I actually did seven times all around the world. I got um, zero points in one event. So, for example, like three, three no jumps and long jumps. And long jump, I threw, when I was learning the javelin in the early days, I got like three no throws in javelin. Um, I fell at the second to last hurdle <sighs> and, the, and the last opportunity to qualify for the 2008 Olympics. So for me, I think maybe it was delayed grief that I had this, somewhat of a self-sabotage during that time. Right. Definitely not intentional. My goodness, Um, would have saved a lot of heartbreak for me and for my family, Um, and a lot less dye. um, You know, hairdresser fees for the dye um, for the grey hairs I've given my poor mother. Um, But um, that's that's my journey, and it's then made the highs so much more rewarding, so much more high to have those moments where. I finally got my, literally got my shit sorted out and Mm. figured out who I was as a person and then I could be better on the track. Because I don't think you can do that without the other one successfully.
1: Yeah. Is it when you have, you know, like you say, three no throws or three no jumps or you fall, that must be so exposing. Like you are, like on that big stage and it's all gone completely. Tits up for want of a better phrase. <laughs> it's really gone tits up, Ricky. Really. And you're right. That's the thing about
0: athletics. It's so brutal, like, that you cannot hide uh, from the numbers, from the results. And if you have no numbers, people are like, well, you're like, first of all, what the hell went wrong? And I remember in 2006, actually, at Commonwealth Games, with a full MCG like, doing three no throws in javelin. And I was very young. I was very inexperienced. And it was, like, my third heptathlon um, as a senior athlete. And, yeah, it was – I just really just wanted to curl up and and hide. But um, I always remember someone saying to me, you know, when you start a heptathlon, you finish it. And no matter how much you want to quit, you've got to finish. And that in itself is brutal. Uh, but, start to finish, it's, these are, you
1: might not know it at the time, but these are lessons for life. Yeah, far out. Yeah, no, yeah, hell of a life lesson falling flat on your face over a hurdle. We better take, we'll take a quick break yeah. here on um, Trailblazers, where my guest is Sarah Cowley-Ross. More about her fascinating career in a moment. Thanks for being with us on Trailblazers today. I'm chatting today with Olympic heptathlete and high jumper and one-time netballer. So, so you did technically, we did do eight sports. I just, my hept is not very good counting. Hept is, hept is seven. You can see I failed school c maths. Sarah Cowley-Ross, what? Um, You're talking about the early days of your career. This is going to sound really basic, a basic question, but how damn hard is it to qualify for an Olympic Games in athletics, particularly in an event like heptathlon? Uh, It's very hard (laughs) (laughs) uh, because
0: you've got a lot of variables uh, and the standards are very high and um, we haven't had many people, uh, many heptathletes, and at, at that level um, because of that. Um, for me I was lucky because I always had X there mm-hmm. uh, and so we had this um, frenemy, sort of rival kind of friendship you know, best friends, but on the track we uh, gave it to each other we were, had like different strengths so um, we were lucky in that regard but Athletics is so brutal. Uh, you're you're yeah, like it's you're you're with the the top athletes in the world and uh, there's no like you said before, there's no hiding behind results and so that's what makes the journey so much sweeter when you are able to qualify and compete at the level that you 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 hoped that you could there and that you dreamed at, dreamed about for such a long time. For me, I remember when, when I was eight years old watching the 1992 Olympics and thinking, "Oh man, that'd be really cool to do that one day." Yeah. And um, then, then you know, every four years having that taste of it, and also realizing, I, I think as well that in netball, I couldn't have gone to the Olympics. Yeah. So for me, it was athletics. Mm.
1: Is it because you're trying to get on that international circuit, right? And you're so you're trying to chase qualifying, you're chasing rankings, you're chasing prize money all the time. And maybe when you're younger, it's it's just what you do as an athlete, right? It's maybe not till you're a little older that you go, "Oh, that's really quite the grind." Or what when what is that like that constant chase or pursuit of something not necessarily a tangible result? Yeah, I think.
0: I think again, like to say, it's something that you can reflect back on. At mm-hmm. the time, it's just um, it's just what you do. It's what you have to do. Um, for me, I did eight seasons, you know, in, in Europe. So, you know, there's that part of it. It's uh, I wasn't with Etheldez is quite unique in that you manage your own campaign. You, you know, I didn't have funding to like last for three months in Europe, so I was constantly trying to find money to. Uh, afford Europe and will afford a, a European or northern hemisphere season uh, as well as you know trying to train for seven events in the heptathlon. so there's lots of different components not just uh, the performance side of it uh, and it, it's it's unrelenting uh, that constant pursuit of qualifying trying to qualify if you if you're at that kind of level if you're just doing a all day then that's that's a different thing. Happy days but for me. Happy days, happy days. Um, but um, for me, it was year in, year out I'm trying to make a standard. And you know, I mentioned that period where I when I wasn't making teams, and uh, that that's really tough uh, because you've kind of, as an athlete, I think you've got this. Like I'm an optimistic person, uh, wow. so you, you're kind of always trying to be hopeful, but. Actually, you need to be realistic, mm. and you need to be really honest with yourself and where you're at. And uh, I think until I really got honest with myself, it was actually when I started to improve.
1: Mm.
0: And not that I was trying to deceive myself, but it's kind of like if you're if you're if you've got a negative mindset around where you're at, it's really uh, difficult to get out of that hole.
1: Yeah.
0: So you have constantly got this like this tension uh, between believing you can versus actually where you're at. And it's a fine balance and juggling that on a, on a very day-to-day basis um, across
1: an event. All right. Can you remember or describe the moment when you did get the qualifying standards for London 2012? Yeah um, I was in a small
0: town in Austria called Götzest. And uh, we were based in Switzerland that summer. And I'd had, um, so basically in 2011, my best score was 5,752 points. And I needed to score 6,050 points. And bearing in mind that I'd improved uh, 42 points in the five years previous to that, um, to 2011. So I, I, came a lot from 2011 to 2012, um, because it was really like a crossroads in me of like, this is like, if you do not make these Olympics, that's, that it's very likely that you will not make, you know, Rio. Um, so it was game on, no wasted minutes. I just, everything was just like re, i basically just redid my life. Um, <laughs> And which was, you know, a big, big thing. And for me personally and on the track. But uh, so I started a heptathlon, started well, and then high jump. I jumped 191. My best prior to that competition was 184. And high jump is a, a real points earner. And bearing in mind the New Zealand record at that stage was 192. Actually, it still is. So I came close to the national high jump record in the second event. And I knew... Um, Okay, every event, you've kind of got a buffer on on your predicted kind of score. And then, you know, personal best in the shot put okay 200, long jump, good, javelin, personal best. So you go into an 800 knowing what you have to run. And I knew I was, like, up. It was a matter of whether I could get the A standard and just be done. Um, Like, not have to kind of wait around. And I'm like in the eight hundred, knowing what splits I have to run every two hundred and um like at six hundred I I know I'm heading like I'm doing well. There's this big, um, tall German who sort of pushes me as I go past with eighty minutes, eighty metres to go and at that point I was just like I physically remember gritting my teeth and I was like, no way in hell am I falling over in this last fifty metres and losing this heptathlon and I just um, got tears in my eyes as I tell you this rookie because it meant so much to me it meant so much to my family and um, I remember calling mum at like 3am in the morning and telling her oh my god mum I've finally done it I scored 6,135 points and I thought she'd be up and she was like fast Sleep, but I was like, "Wake up!" <laughs> uh, so it was pretty cool. And my and my now husband was also at the meet, and um, my coach Elena Brown was at the meet, and my my friend had come from London. So
1: yeah, it was yeah, pretty. Yeah, oh so boom um, and hey, I've got tears in my eyes now. For God's <laughs> sake. This this is this show happens to me all the time. Far out. Yeah. <laughs> and that's just getting so, to the Olympics, right? So then the actual experience yeah. of, of London, was it what you would imagine? Was it completely different? What was your experience like? Um, it was am- it was amazing. Uh it was
0: uh huge because in my event Jessica Innes was in, in the oh. head cat line, she was really the face of the game. So we were the first like two days of the assets in London and I remember coming out to the stadium for our hurdles and and the stadium was full and I was just like like ninety thousand people screaming and they were into it. And I didn't know where my family were sitting in the stadium and um and I just remember putting my blocks down And then hearing my older brother Gaz call out to me, and I just, that for me was a really special moment because it was like this, whilst I was out there and I'm an individual athlete, uh, it's actually about so many people, so many people um, that contributed to my career for me to be on that start line. And yes, there were some people, you know, my, my immediate family were there and my best friend came from Sydney. But more than that, it was like, um, when I look back on like my family legacy, the courage of my grandparents to immigrate to New Zealand, the courage of my you know my great grandparents to come to New Zealand on my mum's side, that for me is means means the most
1: to me uh, so yeah mm. very special oh gosh, right, we better have a break because <laughs> we have a break, dry, dry our eyes. Bit, we've got a bit emotional. We have got a bit emo, but it's, it's lovely and thank you for being so open and it's wonderful. So we'll have a quick break here on SCNZ, come back in a moment on Trailblazers where my guest is Sarah Cowley-Ross. Welcome back to Trailblazers on SCNZ, I'm Ricky Swanell, and we've been chatting, having a bit of a cry actually with Sarah Cowley-Ross just <laughs> reflecting on yeah, uh, an incredible career in, in Heptath on uh, achieving those goals of qualifying and competing at the Olympics but when did you as you said earlier you competed in London 2012 then you went into um, high jump for Glasgow Com Games but when did you decide that you were that you were done with athletics or that that it was time to officially retire I know there was a couple of sort of semis to retirements um, and and to move on with the next phase of your life Yeah I, I think I kind of always thought
0: that Glasgow would be my last event Right uh, and so it was just sort of a natural, it wasn't really this moment that was just, I felt uh, done um, and I, I felt like I should probably uh, start moving on and maybe have a bit more of a professional career as well.
1: Well, so people tell me I've got a lot of jobs and are quite busy. Um, and then I point to people like you who have so many thing, different things that you do but did did you, you you were trained as a physio so you had that and I know you were doing communication you come and did some work experience with me I did, but I did, did you know what you wanted to do? Where you wanted to hit? No,
0: I didn't and I think um, you know, it was a transition period for me I remember coming and doing some work experience with you at radio for you know, you kind lady um, and I, I was I just—I think I had maybe a couple of papers to finish my communications degree which was probably one of the longest communications degrees through Massey University uh, bless them, but um, I actually went into I've been sponsored by ethics for over 20 years I still am and very grateful for that and I, and I went in to the offices and, and told them I was retiring and and as I was driving back home, they kicked me and said, do you, want have, do you want a job? And I was like, oh, go on. <laughs> well, not really, let's be honest, but um, suppose that's what you have to do. And uh, I still was really unsure about, you know, whether I wanted to pursue more sort of media communications roles, but realised actually I'm – I have zero experience apart from working part time as a physio for four years. Uh, earlier, uh, after I graduated from physio school, so I took the job at, in the marketing team and, and sponsorship, and it was awesome. Uh, the, the people were amazing. Uh, I learned a lot very quickly. I remember in the sort of first couple of weeks, uh, I was in a meeting to discuss, um, and we we're talking about a like, our sponsorship portfolio, portfolio, and we had to do a P and l of every event. And I was like, I'll take them. I was like, I actually didn't know what a and l was. I thought it was P-N-L. And uh, I was like in the meeting, taking the notes, and I was like, oh, profit and loss. Okay, that makes sense. P-N-L. Um, <laughs> yeah. so So uh, learned pretty quickly on the job. And had a good time, but realised I was on a maternity leave cover, and then I actually got pregnant myself. So, uh, not the best look getting pregnant while you're on a maternity leave cover, but very grateful for my time at Essex and Broad One Yard
1: yeah so you, you've ended up you've you've sort of gone into that communication sort of realm I guess and and but you I, would, I would definitely class you as a freelancer a contractor you do some writing you do MC work a whole lot of different stuff do you what do you enjoy doing I love
0: doing live events yeah so live TV live commentary uh, the MC work I love and I and I've figured out sort of why I love it is that It's very difficult for athletes to get the same rush of competing after they retire. But in a professional sense, doing live work, having to perform, Mm. uh, having to be really on, gives me, uh, and having to prepare as well, uh, gives me a a similar sort of feeling. And I enjoy people, mostly, and... I love connecting with people, and I love generally connecting with sports people, and increasing visibility of sports people. So that's that the live
1: stuff is what really
0: uh, really gets me
1: going. Oh, that's interesting. I'm glad you can say that because I always say to people, like you do feel like you are on and performing, and they're like, oh, yeah, and it's quite tiring sometimes. Yes, it's yeah. the same sort of, like, exhaustion afterwards, yeah. like, because... I wouldn't, well, I wouldn't say yes. it's the same sort of exhaustion. I don't think I'd do that far. <laughs> Mental exhaustion, yes, not okay. physical exhaustion. Yeah. Did it take time, I guess, to get established and, and to then learn that juggle and, and, you know, what works, what doesn't, uh, you know, and to put yourself out there in a different way? Totally, and I feel like I'm still doing it. Like I'm, I'm still learning. Uh,
0: and I think, you know, if I get into the habit of not learning, then I'm probably yeah. um, shouldn't do it. Uh, but I've been really fortunate to be mentored and 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 helped and and helped by a lot of people. Um, so I'm very grateful for that and for the opportunities that I've been given. But it's definitely something which I out of my life, which is like you say, still a bit like
1: a heptathlon <laughs> uh, in many ways. Uh, it's the stuff I enjoy the most. Yeah. What about stepping into the boardroom and that sort of administrative side of sport where you are sort of actively involved in a lot of different areas? What is it like stepping in, as you say, learning about P&L and things like that, it? but to, <laughs> to step in from an athlete as a 30-year-old with no work experience but a heck of a life experience?
0: Mm. Uh, that for me was also a really great learning opportunity. Uh, I'm, I'm on the board of the New Zealand Olympic Committee as I'm the chair of the New Zealand Olympic Committee Athletes Commission and I I actively sought a board role uh, early on. Uh, I was on the University of New Zealand board and for me it was, uh, first of all, I, we... As athletes, we sort of have this period generally in our 20s where we are just going hard at us and, and nothing else really matters. But it's realising the lessons that you have got from that period in your life are actually uh, valuable. And so for me, I bring it differently. In the boardroom, it's, I've had to be comfortable or try and be comfortable being uncomfortable and speaking out because the other factor for me is that generally I'm – the Youngest person, um, half time on, so I bring a, a, an ethnic diversity as well and an agenda diversity. and I am so I feel so lucky to be on the NZOC board with the board members that are currently on because all of them have been incredibly supportive of me, uh, very nurturing and without um actively realizing that they're doing this, yeah. And uh, and I've also being able to do professional development. So, funnily, about the PL, and uh, l um, recently did. <laughs> you know, the, I've done a few IOD courses now, um, including the financials, uh, to, to really address, to bring up those areas of, of, of weakness, I guess, and, and, and governance yeah. for me. But it's, I, I do really enjoy the governance and, and a huge part of that is the people I get to work with.
1: Have you ever found... Especially, maybe not so much now. I think a few years back, and it's a position I've been in as well, where um, there's been a clamour for, as you say, ethnic diversity. So being someone and then having a woman like a bit of a, a box tick that you were fulfilling a quota at all, or are you like, well, if that's going if I'm gonna tick a box, I'm gonna put my hand up and tick that box and get the opportunity.
0: I think you need to lean into that and lean into the opportunities and the people and recognise the people that have gone before you that have allowed that that opportunity for you. So if the if there's a door opening, slam through it and slam through it not in a in a in, in a um in a loud way. Yeah. But um, I think for me, it's like, and maybe it's something that I see. Um, that I'm aware of that maybe people aren't um, other people in the room aren't aware of but it's something that if, if you're in that position I think you just, just go through it.
1: Yeah. Don't don't let your own hang ups um, or other people's hang ups hold you back. Yeah don't worry about why the door's being open, just go through it perhaps. No. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you, well you have to. I think you I think you have to
0: and um, you can get stuck on that in your own you know, in your own mind. But actually
1: Uh, it's an opportunity and take it take it with two hands We'll take one more quick break here on SCNZ with Sarah Cowley-Ross back in a moment with more Trailblazers Thanks for being with us today on Trailblazers I've been chatting with Sarah Cowley-Ross about an incredible athletics career and now definitely in the second phase of of a sporting career but very much off the field Sarah what What have you kind of learnt in hindsight, in the stuff you do now, but in hindsight about athlete life, about mental health and equity and all of these things that we're hearing so much about in in the sporting realms these days?
0: Well, lots. um, (laughs) Lots, and there's always, uh, I guess, opportunities to learn more. I I think uh, right now we're in a time where athlete voices there's a real opportunity, uh, and but I think probably what I've m- most learned is that you need to be strategic and put time into a strategy around how you can maximise, um, you know, opportunities uh, for whatever group you're involved in. Um, but I think in New Zealand we, we've we've come through this really rough period yeah. uh, of wellbeing issues. And let's not shy away from that. And I, I just don't want to, to dwell on of the things. That acknowledge them; they're part of our history now. But we need to find solutions. And uh, it's very easy to point finger uh, at organisations, at people. But what are what are those people that are pointing the finger doing about it? Mm. And um, I think it's a collective effort, not just individuals. So. Uh, Bits and pieces, a bit of a muddled answer there, Ricky. But those are some of the. Those some of There's a lot of issues out there, but um, I think that uh, there's a lot of goodwill, but it's turning that goodwill into action.
1: Mm. Some of the work and it takes time. Yeah, yeah. So, so some of the work you're doing now is in and around uh, athlete ed. Ad- advocacy, gosh, use your words, Ricky. athlete advocacy Mm -hmm. and and establishment of an athlete leaders network. Why is something like that important now?
0: Well, I think more than ever, athletes are wanting to use their voice and wanting to use their voice for good. And part of the reason why the NZOC Athletes Commission uh, came, um, well, started this initiative uh, was We needed a broader range of opinions, uh, a a broader diversity of opinion outside of our commission. And I think it's also putting athletes in the position to use their voice, you actually need to help develop them as leaders. So when they are called upon to use their voice, they can do so in a way which is most effective. And uh, the second part of it is actually providing a network of support to athlete leaders because it can be very lonely if you are that representative or advocate for whatever group you're after. So it's really about empowering athletes, about supporting them, and no athlete should leave sport with their money not intact. And we want to really uh, strengthen that. Throughout New
1: Zealand sport, yeah. How do you impart that on a sometimes on the public who don't necessarily see all the behind the scenes side of things and just think, well, not I mean not just shut up and row or shut up and dribble, as you know was famously said to LeBron, but that sort of see athletes. A lot of people think athletes, particularly Olympic athletes, are making big bucks and um, you know and living this very glamorous high life all the time. So they see this sort of as having a bit of a whinge more than anything.
0: Yeah, and, and uh, I can tell you now they're not making big bucks. <laughs> yeah. um, the, the majority is, uh, the reality is that, you know, when we look at Tokyo, 64% of our long list were actually unsupported athletes by HPS and Z. So, the, you know, for those athletes, they're out there working maybe <laughs> a couple of jobs to around training to be able to fund their campaigns. Um, but um, I, I don't think it, I think, we actually need to be fair, and this is about inclusion, yeah. really. When we think about it, um, because it's about including people in the decisions that are actually being made about them. And so, to me, it's just common sense. Uh, and it's uh, it's unfortunate that there is a, a kind of that that public mentality of whinging. But I think it's I think there's a growing acceptance of actually, if these people are asked to do this, then probably they need to be considered in the decision-making process when it's appropriate. Um, But ultimately, uh, we've got this balance of wellbeing versus performance at the moment. And so I think that uh, there's definitely more to come in this space, but it's it's really fundamentally about inclusion and a human right, really, uh, of the ability
1: to... Just think. Up, we. I mean, you've got two little, like little little ones. Well, not not teeny tiny, but you know, Max and Pop's are still young. And but you're a, a sporty family. Obviously, your husband's heavily, heavily involved at high level sport as well. Do we? If you saw them coming through a system, what would you like a sports system to look like for for them if they were going to be high performing athletes? I'm going. Deep. I think for us. Yeah, we are going no. deep here, but that's good.
0: That's, that's what I expected from <laughs> you right now. Uh, right. So first of all, um, because I've got a boy, we, we, my husband and I have got a boy and a girl, um, we would want equitable opportunities for them both, yeah. uh, first and foremost. And then we would want them to have an expectation that high-performance sport is to be very clear around the expectations because I think that is where somewhere we could do better around that actually high-performance sport is really hard and actually uh, that you are signing up to this uh, space where it's not going to be comfortable, you're not going to be, it's not all roses. And so I think that that perception early on to, to figure that out early on would be really helpful in the journey. And then I would just say, I know a dickhead's policy, really, um, because you want people, ultimately, you're going to be doing these really hard training sessions, right? But through that, you've got to have an environment of fun. Mm. And I think that, you know, you'd cancel the dickheads and, and you'd
1: solve a lot of problems. <laughs> <laughs> if only in any walk of life, it would be problem solved. I, I, I'm a loose guy person, so I'm just putting it out there. I love it. I love it. And for you, what I mean, what do you do? You have your own. Do you do you still set goals, and as you did as an athlete um, now, or, and what you want to do, or where you want to go with your your second career? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I my mum and dad had us setting goals since we were like
0: ten years old. Every January, going back to school, so that's ingrained in me. Uh, I've got all sorts of different goals at the moment. Uh, physical physical goals I still set. I'm actually hoping to run the four by one hundred metres at uh, relay next week at the national champs. Well, it might not be next week when this comes out. But uh, so I, I need to have a goal. I get a bit lost uh, in training if I if I don't. But there's all sorts of other uh, personal personal life goals and and professional goals that I've. I've got to take off too but with Pops going to school in term two this year I'm just in a process of reflection about exactly what I want to do uh, what are the next steps for me so
1: always lots to kind of
0: consider and contemplate but
1: that's life. Well, I have no doubt whatever it is, you will, it'll be 100% effective and done with all, every, everything that you put into everything. Cause, um, you do a lot for the community and, um, you never miss a Monday, of course, the, um, you know, getting up and getting moving. So it is blimmin' amazing. We could be here for another 17 hours, but we better, um, let you go. Sarah Cowley Ross, thank you so much for being with me on Trailblazers today.
0: Thank you, Ricky, and thanks for everything that you do for so many New Zealanders. You're an inspiration to me, and I've just loved talking to you. Oh, goodness. I'll start crying again. All right, we better go.